Amen. Romans 12. Uh, this is a good quote. You know, just, I mean, a lot of you have been with us as we've gone through Romans. Uh, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, uh, Paul has a lot to say kind of about doctrine, right? Belief. Uh, you know, and, and we've talked heavily about grace. Uh, and if you don't know what grace is, you know, you can listen to the podcast of chapters 1 to 11. Uh, and, and it'll become very clear to you, right? Uh, but there is this interesting, you know, shift or structure that occurs in, in all of the New Testament letters. This idea that, that religion, right, when we hear the gospel, uh, we're hearing about grace. And ethics, meaning how we're meant to live, flows out of gratitude, Right? In the Greek, they're actually the same root word, charis, grace and gratitude, right? meaning they are inseparable. Right? Now, we tend to invert them. Right? If you grow up going to church, that is, that's the, the struggle that you'll have right? uh, of trying to earn grace by your good ethics. Right? That, that's, not, that's not what you find in the Bible. Right? Uh, and so as we understand this, because the second half of Romans, if you will, if you want to divide it into uh, grace and virtue, right? the second half is all about ethics. I mean, today we're going to read uh, you know, verses 9 to 21 uh, of chapter 12, uh, and it's like a machine gun blast of, of virtue. Okay? Uh, and you can, you know, that machine gun blast can, in some sense, destroy you in a sense, oh, it's so much to carry. But you can't, dice, you can't take that out of everything we've studied thus far. All, right? that, that, that all, all, we, all we look at here uh, is, is meant to flow out of gratitude for the grace that God has shown us. Amen? Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, if not, I don't know. Come chat to me. Not right now, but later. All right? So Romans 12, let's read here uh, 9 to 21. Paul writes, he says, A love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written in his mind to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A lot of, lot of bullet points there, right? So there's like 16 uh, participles or imperatives. And so we got 16-point sermon. No, I'm just, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right? It is an interesting passage, you know, and... Uh, Let's have a prayer, and then we'll, we'll dig into it. It won't be 16 points, I promise. Let's pray. Now, Father, we, uh, we do thank you. We thank you, you know, that we are saved by grace, and that all we do is, is meant to be motivated by gratitude, Father. We do pray you help us with that, God. You know, as we, as we talk today here about, about love, God, and love for one another, we pray you help uh, you know, us to take, you know, just as Jack and Bianca shared about, take, take the gospel message, 
the concept of, of us being undeserving of love, and yet you shower us with love. Help, help us to reflect that into our relationships with one another, Father. We pray that you can be with us, God, that you can open up the eyes of our hearts. Help us, God, to, you know, to define love as you define it and, and to practice it as you desire us to practice it. Uh, be with us now, we ask so in Christ's name. Amen. Look, it is a lot there. I mean, we could do, you literally could take every one of those sentences and build an entire sermon out of them. Right? If you've got free time, go, go for it, do that. Uh, it, it, I'm sure it'll be very, very impacting. If you're familiar with the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is, in, and chapter 13 is almost a parallel to this section. Right? In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul takes the same major topics. He talks about the body of Christ, the church. Uh, he talks about the various gifts that, that God has given to, to the various parts of that body. Uh, and then he ties it all together with the great poetry of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which is all about love. Right? And here we have the same exact structure. Right? Uh, he's talked about the fact that we're all one body there in the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, he's talked about the fact that, that uh, there are different gifts, and he urges them to use those gifts for the good of the body. Uh, and then basically everything we read here today is bound together by love. Some people even think that, that the first verse is there, first verse, verse 9, uh, is a heading or a title for the entire section. And so every other command uh, or, or, or um, you know, statement that, that Paul makes is ultimately tied to love, right? Uh, and so we'll look at, you know, we'll look at four points, okay? We'll, we'll look at the supremacy of love, because that's pretty clear and that's pretty apparent, right? Uh, and even more so as we dig in, you'll see that, right? But we'll see that, that how Paul wants us to practice love is a little bit different. Right? I mean, literally, if you're reading different translations, uh, love, love must be sincere, is, is love cannot be hypocritical. Right? You can't just act like you love. It's not, Christianity is not a religion of niceness. Right? But actually, there's concrete ways that you are meant to do love and show love. Right? Uh, oddly paired for most of us, right? with, with a Western viewpoint, uh, is that Paul transitions seamlessly from talking about love to talking about evil. Uh, he has no problem pairing those together. Right? And he has a lot to say about evil, the fact that it does exist, uh, and we are meant to hate evil. Right? And that's not necessarily an unloving thing, as we'll talk about. Right? Uh, but we'll also talk about the way to combat evil, which is radically different than our own natures want to, You know, the way that our own natures typically respond to evil. And so we'll dig into those four points. So. Hopefully that sounds good, right? So let's look for, first here at the supremacy of love. And, you know, if you're, you know, I don't know, if you, if you like reading C.S. Lewis, one of his lesser known books is, uh, you know, called The Four Loves. Uh, and he talks about the different Greek words for love. And, and interesting here, Paul uses a lot of the major Greek words. Right? C.S. Lewis's book covers four of them, but, you know, really there's probably six different Greek words that are used for love. Uh, up until this point in Romans, Paul has used agape, which is kind of the highest form of love, that unconditional love. He's used it solely for God towards us. But here, he pushes that, right? It's no longer just God towards us. It's meant to be us towards one another, right? That agape love that, that we've learned from God must, must be shown to one another. In verse 10, he talks and he uses two other, firm, two other forms of, of the Greek for love. Uh, he talks about being devoted to one another in love, you know, using philostorgos, which is that of familial love, with that of Philadelphia, which is like brotherly love. Right? Uh, you know, and so he uses these two forms. Right? Uh, most of us in here are not, well, some of you are, but most of us are not uh, blood-related. 
But Paul's saying, look, you gotta, you're, you're, the friend love that we do all share, you're, you're meant to treat friends within Christianity as if they are family. All right? pushing, pushing the bounds of that love. Right there in verse 13, he, he talks about practice hospitality, uh, filiozina, which is, you know, the, literally the love of strangers. Right? The love of strangers. That's what hospitality is, right? So he uses that form of love. And then I'm making up a Greek word for the last one. Uh, but if you look at everything at the end of this, this passage that we read, uh, that is not a real word, by the way. Filio enemy. Filio enemy. That's a made up word. It's not a real word. But it is in some sense what Jesus pushes, right? Love for enemies. If you know the Bible, you, you know that uh, you know, Paul's not just quoting from Proverbs there at the end of that chapter. A lot of these verses heavily echo what Jesus says about love in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Very, very similar material, right? Uh, and, and, and so what you see here is Paul using most of the words for love available to him in the language he, he's writing uh, to try to help us to see, man, love runs through everything. And if you don't get that, man, I don't, I don't know. You read Jesus' teachings, you understand the supremacy of love. People come to Jesus in the Gospels, they ask, what are the greatest commandments? Sum it all up. Give me a summary statement. The book is too long, they say. right? And he boils it down to two things. Love God and love your neighbor. right? Love is so, so foundational. Now what is interesting, though, Paul uses you know, agape, he uses uh, storgos, he uses uh, Philadelphia, he uses philoxenia, uh, but he doesn't use two other ones. Right? And the two other ones are, are the Greek words for romantic love, eros. Not that Paul is anti-romantic love as a single brother, right? But he does, you know, and he does write a little bit about that, right? But Paul understands that that love is, is reserved within marriage. And here in this context, he's talking fully about the church, right? And so he leaves, leaves eros out, you know? But the other one he leaves out uh, is, is the Greek word for self-love, right? You know, which you know, almost completely disappears uh, from the cultural writings post-Christianity. Because a fair bit of Jesus' teachings in the New Testament obviously extinguishes that concept of that being a high form of love. Right? Now, ironically enough, which two loves do, do, does the world that we live in elevate? The two he leaves out. Right? Romantic love and self-love. Those have become the chief loves of, of the modern world, just as they were in many ways for a lot of the Hellenized, you know, the Greek culture in the past. Right? But Paul is, even in his time, he's cutting countercultural. Right? And he's defining love and refining love, how they understood it, to, to a more narrow viewpoint. Right? That, that's important. Amen? Hopefully that makes sense to you. But you see, nonetheless, the supremacy of love. Right? But he doesn't stop there. You know, even as I said earlier, you know, he begins there in verse 9 with that, this charge that, that literally uh, the love he's talking about, it must be not hypocritical. All right? And hypocrite, again, if you've been around and you heard that word, I mean, it's, it's literally just the Greek word for actor that Jesus took and used for someone acting religious when they're not really following God uh, and, and, and turned a normal use word into kind of like the ultimate insult. To be used against a Christian, right? Is to be called a hypocrite, you know. And uh, you know, John Murray, who's a famous a Scottish uh, writer uh, and theologian, he, his quote about this passage he says, "If love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy the epitome of vice, what a contradiction to bring these together." Right? And many people think perhaps Paul, as he as he writes this and gives this charge to help us to understand that that love must be sincere, it must be genuine. It must be whole. It can't be uh, just merely lip service. That, he, the, that perhaps he has Judas 
as an image in his mind. And the epitome of hypocrisy. Coming to Jesus, giving him a kiss, but man, really, he's got something else going on. And Paul's saying, hey, you've got to watch out in the church. We don't take on Judas's game. Coming into church, giving hugs, being nice, asking how, how people are going when, when behind the back. We're saying a lot of different things. He's pushing heavily against, hey, look, it's not meant to be like that. That's how the world operates. And a lot of you, uh, you know, one of the things you loved as you first came into church was the genuineness. Because the world is full of backbiting. The world is full of two-faced relationships. They say one thing to your face and then another thing behind your back. They act all friendly, but they're not really. And, and Paul said, look, there's no, there's no place for that in God's church. Right? You've got to speak the truth to one another, as he says in Ephesians 4, out of love. You know, and everything he says, you know, even, even the things that maybe are a little bit difficult to understand how they connect, uh, everything he says in that section is about relationships. Right? And what's also interesting is when we talk about love, we tend to think of a feeling and an emotion. For Paul, it is tangible. It's actions. It's intentional decisions. Not just something you feel when you see another person. Not just something you talk about when you talk to that person. But something that is seen in your deeds. And Paul's not the only New Testament writer to do this, right? You know, can't you can't you can't say that you love your brother and sister, right? But then not look after them financially. That's crazy, right? Uh, and James has has something to say about this, right? But Paul gives you know a long list, you know, depending on how you number them, twelve, thirteen, fourteen different, uh, you know, you know, uh, the way he phrases them in the Greek, they're not imperatives; they're they're almost like they're obligations. Which again, in Paul's mind, he, he's 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 written eleven chapters of material. Uh, and he's literally just talked to the Gentile Christians about the fact that they have been grafted into God's family. That they were a wild olive vine, uh, useless and uncultivated, but God in his grace has allowed them to become part of a cultivated vine. That's a privileged position. And so he, he, he writes them almost as obligations, right? Based on what you have, based on what you have been given, based on the grace shown to you, here's how you got to live. And he shouldn't even have to tell us to do it because really it should overflow from our hearts. You know, and a lot of these are great, obviously great, uh, you know, great, great uh, principles to live by. We already talked about, you know, that our, the, the, the love we naturally have towards our family, we're meant to have that with one another. Right? We use those terms a lot. Brother, hey bro, hey sis. We use it, but we again got to think. Do you really treat them? like your brother or your sister. Because you think about family. And about you, right? Family sometimes can embarrass us. But at the end of the day, you laughed way too loudly with your sister in here. I can't help you on that one, all right? Sorry, Rachel. All right? So Rachel obviously feels embarrassed by Beck, you know? And, and we all understand why, because we all know Beck. And... and but nonetheless, Rachel in her heart of hearts knows what? Beck is, she's her sister. Like her or not, she's stuck with her. She's going to stick by her, right? Uh, it has that longevity about it, you know? And I think we got we to see that way, right? We got to see that. Whether we like it or not, again, whether we always get along with each other, 
that's somewhat irrelevant because we're family, and whether we like it or not, we're stuck together, right? Uh, the, again, depending on the Bible translation you're reading, but you know, honor others above yourself, right? Paul, Rachel's just back. Yeah, Rachel's just flustered now. She's done. Just try to ignore her, right? Stay with me because we got to move a little bit quicker, right? <laughs> honor, on, you know, when Paul writes honor, uh, you know, one another above yourself, he's it can be translated two different ways. It's almost as if he is saying, you know, be competitive with one another to honor one another, which is kind of the opposite of how we normally do, right? We normally jockey for uh, positions of honor and recognition and praise and glory and all those things. And Paul says, no, 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 take that drive, but use that drive not to build up self, but man, for others, for others good, right? Uh, you know, verse 13, share with the Lord's people, right? You know, the other, we don't have time to go through all of them, right? But, you know, I think probably the reason he talks about, you know, don't be lazy in your zeal and keep your spiritual fervor, you know, keep that boiling fire going, uh, you know, while you serve the Lord. The, the reason he says that is because it's easy to be zealous uh, for God when it's just you and God. Right? It's great to read, you know, okay, I gotta love people. But then you go hang out with Stefan and you're like, oh, this is hard. Right? And, no, I'm just kidding. I love Stefan, right? Uh, not just with words, but in actions, hopefully. Right? But, 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 but that's what Paul's talking about there. Right? Is is we can lose that spiritual fervor when it really actually comes to the relationships. But we got to push through, right? You know, verse 13, as I, as I started before, you know, sharing with God's people. You know, a lot of Christian, Christian uh, aid organizations lose this side of this. This is actually the primary mandate for the church, is to look after the needs within the church. Doesn't mean you don't care about the needs outside the church. That's secondary. Right? But one of the tremendous examples of, of, of that this year is, you know, your guys' incredible generosity towards the disciples in Fiji. Right? Those were disciples, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, man, we, we generate, you know, the churches in Australia, not just us, but, you know, generously looked after them. That's biblical. That's right. That's the same thing that, that Paul writes uh, in Galatians 6 as well. Right? It's primarily towards those that are Christians. That overflows into the world. That overflows into the world. And that's awesome. Right? Practice hospitality. It's literally the Greek word for, for uh, practice is the same Greek word in the next sentence for persecute. Bless those who persecute you. Because someone who persecutes you, they, they, they seek you out. They pursue you. Maybe you've never been persecuted, right? Uh, but when I was a new Christian, I was on uh, a campus, a university in America, uh, and one of the other uh, religious denominations didn't really... Uh, like some of the Bible teaching that, that, that we were doing on that university campus. And, and if I sat down and studied the Bible with someone in public, there were people who would, would come and try to disrupt that Bible study. Right? They were seeking me out. Not to help, right? not to encourage, but, but to, to stop. Right? But, but the same word is used there for practice hospitality. Now, we often invert it again, don't we? We think, oh, you know. Who's going to invite me over for dinner? Who's going to, who's going to have me over? Right? You know, it's been a while since they did that. We, we expect someone else. When Paul said, no, 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 you, you seek them out. Seek them out. Right? A strange, someone you don't know, man, you go. Don't wait for them to come. Don't wait for them to invite themselves over or for them to invite you over. No, no, you pursue it. You run after it. Right? Verse 15 obviously talks about a, a, a radical empathy. I mean, rejoicing when others rejoice. 
You can only do that if your life has been changed by the gospel. Because if your life hasn't been changed by grace, then, then other people's success, you see them as your failure. Because you're self-absorbed. You're, you're, you're still turned in on yourself. Right? But the gospel frees us from that fruitless pursuit and turns us outward and helps us to find satisfaction in God. Therefore, we don't look for it in other people. And so then we're actually able to love that way. Right? But that's, that's, again, it's, a, it's an awesome thing. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, but also mourning with those who mourn. You know, verse 16, he appeals to them to, to live in harmony. Right? Uh, I, I can't harmonize. Right? But when you hear the people up here singing that have skill, right? Uh, they they uh, sing differently but complement each other. Right? They sound differently, but the, the differences actually, actually make everyone collectively sound better. Right? But that, that comes as you work together with the person. You don't see them as a threat. You don't you know, expect them to conform to you. Right? But that's a, that's a beautiful picture of how relationships are meant to be. Right? If you played sport, you get this concept. Right? Not everyone should be shooting threes, right? Some people, they just need to set picks and get out of the way, right? That's, that's a fact of life, right? Uh, in sport, right? But it's the same in church as well, right? We, we live in harmony with, with tremendous differences. But those differences are not slights, they're actually complementary, right? Uh, you know, and, and also verse 16, obviously, he, he emphasizes the, the willingness uh, to associate with anyone and everyone. Again, the, the gospel purges our hearts of, of pride and enables us, right, to no longer categorize the world into good people, bad people, right? But the reality is we're all bad people, you know, and so there's no, there's no need for anything that divides. No matter how pronounced that may be, whether, you know, financially, culturally, racially, it's, it's irrelevant, Right? Because we're, we're, we're all willing to associate with anyone and everyone because we all have accepted the reality that we are nothing. Right? Again, all of these things have their root established in love. But it's not a feeling. It's something to be practiced. And a lot of times as we practice it, as we do it, and as we wrestle with our hearts, man, it becomes more and more genuine. Right? Again, we can't just do it but not feel it. Right? But, but saying we don't feel it doesn't then free you from having to do it. Right? We, we've got to, to live it out and wrestle with our hearts. To get our hearts to get on board with the real love, not just acting it, but actually living it out. Amen? So, so that, that's, you know, obviously you can see the supremacy of love and, and, and how Paul wants it to be practiced without hypocrisy. Right? Now, now thirdly, is again something that is shocking when you read this text. You read verse 9 and you think, okay, love must be sincere. Sounds great. Hate what is evil, though? Okay, we, we make these polar opposites, right? But Paul, you know, he, he, he roots and establishes everything he's saying here about love in this principle, right? Of hating what is evil, clinging to what is good. He even rounds out the section with do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, Timothy Keller in his commentary talks about how this is meant to, you know, prevent everything that follows from being snatched out of context and used in a different way. 
Because love can become extremely subjective. And when we begin to dive into the, the, the depths of love, right, it, it can distort our thinking. And you know this if you've ever been in love, right? Because what's the, what's the common saying? Michelle knows, right? Mandy knows, right? Love is blind, right? Uh, Michelle loves me, hopefully, and so she doesn't see all my idiosyncrasies at first, right? Now she does, and she's stuck, right? Till death, which I remind her, because that's the family principle that we talked about earlier, right? You know, but, but love has that, that, uh, that tendency to do that. And, and we've got to be careful with it. Because our culture wants to define love a certain way that I don't think God defines it. And our culture will tell, our culture will tell us that, that, that X is, is the loving thing to do when maybe the Bible is saying that, that Y is the loving thing to do. Right? And, and, and again, Paul makes sure that we understand that, that these you know, commands to love and this mandate to love and this, this, this principle of love that permeates every aspect of, of Christianity is not is not um, subjectively free to go wherever it wants to go. It's objectively rooted in, in, in a reality of the world and that there is evil and that there is good. And, and, and they need different responses. And, and we'll dive into this a little bit more touch later, not super late because we're almost out of time, right? But... Sometimes hatred is the loving response. <laughs> yeah, we gotta be we gotta be okay with that. Again, it does purify, it does refine our viewpoint of love, but we got we gotta understand this. This is incredibly important. Because if we distort love, man, we can we can do a lot of damage in our relationships. If we have a, a weak definition of love, it can, again, it can, it can cause a tremendous amount of, of, of heartache and problems. You know, one of the clearest ways you see this is in your most fundamental relationships, right? You, you find this if, you've, if you are a parent, right? Uh, as a parent, you, you know, as your kids grow up, your love for them continues to grow. But everyone inevitably as a parent reaches that crossroads moment where, you know what, you, you love your child and you've loved your child before you even knew your child, right? Uh, and, and it's a beautiful thing, uh, but, but it, you know, I don't know what age group starts, probably pretty early, right? Uh, two or, in, I don't know, maybe instantly, right? You know, probably not instantly. But, but a parent is inevitably faced with the choice of, I love this child, but this child is annoying. <laughs> or rebellious or foolish not my kids for sure but your guys' kids definitely <laughs> right but you're faced with a choice there of of using love incorrectly right you can say oh, you know if i tell if i tell him no or her no they really that upsets them and so i'm not going to tell them no because the, the the reaction is is you know it's not, you know, my action is not being loving, and I can see that based on their reaction. But everyone knows that's, that's, that's really, really dangerous with a kid. <laughs> right? I mean, really dangerous. I mean, some of us that were raised, you know, kind of free-range parenting, like myself, or laissez-faire parenting, kind of like, you know, let the child teach itself. <laughs> that never plays out well. That never plays out well. Right? Because left to ourselves, what are we? We're, 
We're sinful people. And that there's evil there. Very early in the game. But again, we can, under the guise of love, not confront. <laughs> but we got to think, it's not, it's not that you love your kids so much. That's not the reason why you don't confront them. It's actually you love your kid too little. And you love yourself probably too much. But this isn't just with parents. This can be with spouses. Where, where you, 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 you don't confront. Because of the consequences of confronting. Or with friends, you know, this kind of, you know, secret pact of let's never dob each other in on anything. Well, is that actually loving? I mean, you are loving, but the Bible would actually say, no, you, that's actually self-love. Right? Leviticus talks about this. Proverbs talks about it, right? Rebuke, you know, don't hate your neighbor. Rebuke him frankly. Modern world looks at it and thinks, what? <laughs> don't hate my neighbor. Rebuke him frankly. I thought rebuking my neighbor is hating my neighbor. Yes, from the world's perspective, it is. But from God's, that's, that's actually the very loving thing to do. Incredibly loving. You know, I went to get uh, my skin checked for skin cancer the other week, right? Uh, which is a pretty invasive procedure, right? I mean, you like strip down naked and some guy like looks at everything like incredibly closely, right? Uh, it's, you know, I don't know. It's good for our hearts probably, right? You know, but at the end of the, at the, end of the session, he wants to take his scalpel and cut some stuff out. That's going to hurt. You know, but there's some like, this. it actually kind of felt good as he did it, right? Because I knew that, yes, this, this scalpel cutting in my skin, and yes, he probably should have done three injections, not two, for the pain, but, but just go for it, man, because if it's cancer, you averting the pain that you're going to cause me is not the loving thing to do. And we've got to understand that what Paul is talking about here with love, man, it is, it is grounded in an understanding that there is evil in the world and that there is good. And love may be blind, but love needs to open its eyes. And we need to think a little bit deeper about really, when we let love just kind of run amok, or a relationship run amok, there's love there, but it's it's probably not enough love. And it's probably not a godly love, it's probably a self-centered love. You know, you can read Timothy Keller's commentary on this section. He has a lot to say about that point, right? But this idea that Paul says, hey, you've got to recognize evil. Now, recognizing is only part of the, the, the steps, really. Because you've got to respond to it. You know, and how, how you respond to it, you know, is not, that's not easy. You know, the, last night, um, we got rid of two of our kids for the night. Uh, the younger two, Maddie and Jake. And, and we just had Allie, so, because it was just Allie, I thought, let's watch The Lord of the Rings. And I said that not realizing how long those movies are. <laughs> So let's watch half of one of the Lord of the Rings movies, right? You know, but we, so we watched the first, you know, The Fellowship of the Ring. Hopefully you've seen it. If not, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to ruin it for you here fairly quickly. Um, you know, but this is a scene early on where, where, you know, kind of this odd band of, of people from, from all the different races uh, of Middle Earth and, and Tolkien's world that he's created there uh, gather together to try to figure out what do you do with this evil ring, all right? The ring of power that you know, controls and destroys everyone, right? Uh, you know, one of the guys stands up, this guy Boromir, who's, you know, his dad's like the steward of a king, kind of a fake king, but, you know, nonetheless, he's invited to the party. Uh, and he comes to the party, and he, he immediately stands up and says, look, maybe this is, you know, providence in some sense. 
Maybe we have this ring of power now, and so let's use this ring of power to then, you know, destroy uh, Sauron, right? Destroy the evil, evil leader. And he, he looks at it and he says, man, providence, right? Let's, you know, let's take this powerful ring and let's use it for good. You know, and Gandalf, the, the wizard guy, you know, uh, you know, I don't know how he does it, but, you know, darkens the whole scene and, you know, rebukes him strongly, basically saying, look, by, by trying to counter evil, using evil, you are becoming evil and you are therefore defeated. Right? And so recognizing evil, is, that's important. But man, responding the right way is also vitally important. Right? And you can watch the movie if, you, if you've never read it, right? But, but, you know, this is not easy, how you respond to evil. I mean, the first step is also hard, admitting there is evil, but, but responding rightly is also, ch- is also challenging, right? Uh, you know, and even in the Old Testament, you see the, the kind of the, the ancient approach to evil, right? Uh, is take revenge and bring them down to the, <laughs> to the grave in blood, right? And that's, that's good old King David saying that, right? Uh, you know, but that was the perspective, right? Revenge. Take them down, right? You know, the Essenes, who were kind of like an uh, extreme group in, in Jesus' time and even, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus as well, you know, th- this was their spiritual response, right? Uh, you know, we won't touch you now, but God's going to crush you later. That's obviously been brought up to modern day because they said that in Aramaic or Hebrew, right? But, but nonetheless, it's, it's pretty clear their viewpoint. How do we combat evil? Well, I'm not going to do anything to you, but man, God's going to take you down. And you can almost hear them relishing in it as they, as they say it. Uh, you know, one of the, you know, the, the more common ones, you know, though it's not new, is, you know, Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher. You know, he, he, he had this viewpoint of the most uh, contemptuous, you know, or, you know, not, not how we use contemptuous, but one of the most insulting ways to take revenge is to deem your adversary not worth taking vengeance of. Right? Michelle Obama has a similar version of this, not anti-Obama, you know, but you know, she, she would say this, you know, they, they go low, we go high. So it's the moral superiority approach to evil. Right? Again, the, the variations of these throughout the world. Right? And, and to understand that, man, how God says to deal with it is so radically different. And it cuts against every one of these responses. Right? The take revenge approach, the I won't, but God's going to smite you approach. Uh, you go low, I'll go high, Seneca and Michelle Obama. You know, here, here's, here's how these pair up with what Paul's saying. To those who have the take revenge approach, he says, don't, don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. The Essenes love that part of that, but they don't, they don't want to read much further. Right? But that idea of, hey, you know what? We, we can't take Revenge. We can't avenge. And you got to think about that. It, it may not be because your punishment uh, is too much. It may be because your punishment's too little. It works both ways. But the reality is it's above our pay grade. We, we, it's not ours to take. Right? The, the Essenes, you know, I won't, but God will. Well, hold on. God does say it's not your place to take revenge, but he also says... Uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Right? On the contrary, right? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Right? And in doing this, you'll burn, you know, pour hot coals on their head. That doesn't mean that you are like beginning the raining of fire and brimstone down from above, okay? Some people do translate that. It literally, you know, culturally back then, 
Uh, you know, you didn't just turn the knob and it clicks on with, with, with fire, right? It's this image of, hey, your, 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 your neighbor who, uh, who, who fights with you about everything, their, their fire went out and so they can't cook brekkie. So they come over to you and, and, and you know, can you help us out? You give them hot coals. You show them kindness, right? It's Hebrew parallelism, right? It's saying the same thing twice. It's the same as giving them food. It's the same as giving them drink. It's this idea of not responding back in, in anger or hatred or malice, but giving good, showing kindness, right? Even if they don't, don't deserve it, right? The, the you know, Seneca approach uh, of moral superiority is challenged by this, this charge from, from Paul of don't, don't be conceited, Right? Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. You know, in Galatians 6, it's similar veins. Hey, so, someone stumbles and they're entangled in sin. Hey, all of the instructions that Paul has in Galatians 6 for helping a person that's caught in sin are warnings against the person helping so that they don't also end up in sin. Because pride in that moment is a very real and very dangerous thing. But you see, at every step of the way, Paul and, of course, Jesus, who, who started this, is showing a different way. And guys, I need to turn on the news for five minutes and figure out the world does not grasp this. The world doesn't know. One of the most searched terms uh, at the beginning of, of the coronavirus lockdowns around the world was divorce. As people were locked in the house with one another, and they thought, I love this person, but I don't like him anymore, and I'm out, you know? And, and, and man, it proves that, man, our, our world, our, they don't, we don't know how to deal with stuff. Don't know how to deal with it. Right? And God's showing us a very, very different way. And a lot of people in history, there's endless examples, right, of people who have figured this out, who have, who have understood the, the, the power of Jesus' approach and have, have taken this approach in a way that produces radical social change. Right. And Abraham Lincoln, one of the famous ones, you know, and, you know, as the, the, the Civil War in America, you know, was was rounding up. One of the guys in, in his cabinet uh, challenged him on, on what's he going to do with those he's just defeated. Right. He said, he said, I think you would want to destroy your enemies. And Lincoln replied, uh, don't I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? It's a different approach. It's a different approach than a lot of times how we operate. And how the world operates, right? And we've got to learn to, to respond to evil in, in the right way. Right? Now there is a, a caveat, caveat to this, okay? You know, even in our text, you see this, right? Down in, in verse 18, Paul, in some sense, gives a disclaimer. Right? He, he wants us to, to be at peace with everyone, right? Uh, but our, verse 18, he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That, that harmony in relationships, the mending of, of, of enemies becoming friends, that, that, is, that requires two sides. You can, you can love that person and, and, and no change happen. So the relationship can't be, be restored. That's a reality. I think we got to understand that, man. You know... These passages at times have been used to justify atrocities. 
We've got to understand that, that you can't just pluck out one verse. Yes, Jesus is uh, the, the originator and the, the tremendous example of loving your enemies. But he also has some of the strongest things to say to those who, who, who hurt or take advantage of those who are in positions of weakness. I mean, three times you get him, you know, with the old, there's a millstone there, as you can see on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the screen. You know, I mean, he, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all reference Jesus talking about, you cause a little one to stumble. He's not just talking about a child. He's talking about a vulnerable person. You use your position of strength to, to take advantage of another. God says the route that is best for you in that situation is to tie a millstone around your neck and to toss yourself into a lake. Okay, that's strong. We've got to understand that. Right? The, the, the command to love your enemy is not a permission uh, to remain in a position where, where maybe your, your life is in danger. Or you're being abused physically or emotionally. And people have used these passages to try to justify that. But you've got to understand that there is another side. Okay? <laughs> There's more scriptures than just Romans 12, 9 to 21, you know, and you got to look at them in, in, in their entirety. But there is a tension that does run in this passage between these two truths, right? Of a sincere love that hates evil and clings to good, but also that uh, of, of loving your enemy. we got to understand that there are, uh, there are nuances within that, right? That, that can't be ignored, right? And Andrew DeCourt, who, you know, guy who... Uh, uh, writes writes some books and and does missionary work in Africa. You know he 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 actually does two two courses on loving your neighbor, but but he talks about this. He says Jesus did not attend for his ethic of forgiveness and enemy love to justify and aggregate the suffering of abuse victims. To the contrary, Jesus's fiercest words of condemnation were spoken against those who abuse the vulnerable. Those are passages that we reference there at the end, right? You know and and, and you know. It's not just Andrew that has figured this out. One of the great the, uh, theological thinkers in, in the history of Christianity is this guy Thomas Aquinas, who lived you know 12, 1200 to thirteen hundred in that age range, you know, and, and he has a lot to say about this, right? And, and he 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 pushes right. One of the things he says about this very topic, he said, "Hatred of a person's evil is equivalent to love of his good." Hence, also this per perfect hatred belongs to love. Right? And Thomas Aquinas' point is this essentially that, that, and he pushes this really far, okay? Preteens are in, so we're not going to go all, all the way into everything Thomas Aquinas has to say about this topic, you know? But, but he does say, hey, you've got to think about this. Opposing somebody who, who is practicing evil behavior and, and even punishing them in its various forms, like Paul's going to talk about in chapter 3, which is the governing authorities bear the sword. He says, you've got to understand, that actually may be the most loving thing to do for that person. Because if that person is allowed to, to, to continue on the path that they are on unchecked, how much more evil are they going to produce in the world? So maybe the loving thing to do is actually to oppose that person. And maybe that's why Jesus has such strong things to say in protection of those who are the most vulnerable, because he understands right, the, the knock-on effect that these things have. You know, maybe it is the most loving thing to do, right? Uh, you know, and some of the passages in the Bible are hard on this, guys. 
That's just like 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, where, where Paul, you know, takes a scenario of, of, of sin and evil that's happening within the church, and he tells the Corinth church to expel the wicked person from among them. Paul is doing that out of love. That person probably doesn't feel loved. They probably feel hated. But Paul, you know, very straight up, tells the Corinth church that the aim of that is to destroy the person's flesh so their soul can be saved. Thomas Aquinas would say, that is real love. There's a time and a place for that. It's a painful process. But there is a time and a place for that. We've got to have a more robust viewpoint of love, right? You know, seeing that, that, that love is not defined purely by someone's response of, of, of liking something or disliking something. It goes way beyond that, all right? But we do need to understand that, amen? You know, and so hopefully today you walk away with a greater understanding of what love is. And understand it's way beyond some feeling that you feel in your heart. And it can never remain as just something you utter out of your mouth. It needs to be seen in your actions. Seen in how you, how you live day in and day out. Right? Not just once, but a continual way of living. You know, but, but love does not mean there isn't an absence of evil. There is good and evil. The subjectivity, the subjectivity of love that you see in the world it, that, I mean, it has no place in the biblical world. For Paul, love is grounded and the reality is, hey, we need to hate what God hates. We need to cling to what's good is defined by God. Right? And that that needs a shape. Right? How we respond to evil. Right? Uh, next week we'll look at, at, at an expanded idea of this topic as Paul dives into, in chapter 13, the role that the governing authorities have to play in this. Right? And, and that's a, more challenging ideas to come uh, because he's not talking about the generally kind and, and democratic of approach of, of Australia. He's talking about the Roman Empire that literally is going to chop off his head. right? But, but nonetheless, he sees, hey, look, God has a providential hand behind that. Amen?